opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm thrilled to be back in the studio this afternoon with a very special guest who happens to be a local lady, and we're going to be bringing her onto the show in just a few minutes. Um, of course, for all things related to the show, we have a lot of exciting things going on um, and in development, so we'd love for you to check out our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. And be sure to follow us on social media at Women to Watch Media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, so first, joining us this afternoon is our, our very own financial advisor, Kristen Hillsley, who is with the Foley Hillsley Group. And Kristen's going to be talking about a, a really uh, important and relevant topic this afternoon, social objectives, um, how we align those with our financial goals. So I'd like to welcome Kristen to the show. Hi, Sue. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Having a little bit hard time hearing you. Are you on a on a cell? No, I'm on my office line. Okay. Um, maybe just try to turn the volume up just a bit. Okay. Um, How's that? Better? Yep. Sounds good. Okay. So, um I'm glad to have you this afternoon, and I understand you wanted to talk briefly about um, how we can align our social objectives with our financial goals, and I know it's a very hot topic today. Mm-hmm. Yep, you probably have heard it called lots of different things. You've probably heard social responsible, socially responsible investing, ethical investing, impact investing, values investing, sustainable investing. There are so many different terms and methodologies to use, but the most important thing is that they all have the same underlying goals, and that is really to try and build a more viable and equitable world by taking into account things that maybe are non-financial factors like environmental, social, and corporate governance issues. So today we're really lucky that we can turn our purpose into our portfolio. Can you can you actually give me a definition if someone were to say what exactly is social responsible investing? What, what would you say in a sentence? Mm-hmm. Um, well, in a sentence, I guess I would probably get a little tongue-tied, but in a couple of sentences, I could probably do a better <laughs> job, <laughs> if that's okay. Um, because when we're trying to uh, build our social, a socially responsible portfolio, there's kind of like – two ways that you can do it. So you hear the term socially responsible investing, and that is 
you know, re- responsible investing in general has evolved over the years. So when we think of the traditional forms of socially responsible investing, that's kind of like avoiding or screening out industries or companies that don't meet um, an investor's ethical or social or environmental preferences. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times we'll call that exclusionary or negative screening, and that means we're getting we're getting rid of all the sin stocks. So that's your tobacco, your alcohol, your pollution, weapons manufacturing, those types of stocks. Um, and, and that's still a widely used way of socially responsible investing. However, um, we've evolved, and a more common framework today is taking a positive approach rather than a negative approach to screening investments. So today we focus more on finding companies with certain positive attributes related to the environment or social or corporate governance factors. So nowadays what you'll hear is the ESG investing or ESG factors, and that again, E is for environment. That's when we're looking at like carbon emissions, water stress, um, um, energy efficiency, those types of things. The S stands for social, so that's when we're talking about labor management, human capital development. Um, For my industry, that's financial product safety, or something that's a big topic today is privacy and data security, so those are all really important social um, factors. And then the last one is governance. Mm -hmm. So if we look at, like, um, corruption, instability, financial system instability, business and ethics fraud, um, all these things. So these types of factors are really important. You know, they can bring big risk factors or they can provide us with big opportunities because really what we're talking about is building a portfolio. Like how can we create wealth or grow our own portfolios but also have these important Um, ESG factors in mind. And really, all you have to do is take a look back at 2008, and you can see where there were many companies where their um, corporate governance failed us, and there was an extreme amount of wealth lost. Um, Or if you look at environmental factors, like if we think back to BP and their Deepwater Horizon or Exxon uh, with its Valdez oil spills, they had significant financial and reputational damages for those companies and obviously for the environment. So when we're kind of building an, uh, a portfolio this way, the goal is to understand how these companies handle these risks and opportunities and what effect they might have on corporate behavior and performance. Okay. So tell me, is is this a trend that you're seeing, you know, widespread? Is is there um, a demand for, for responsible investing? Well, it, this used to be sort of a niche investment, but it's become one of the fastest growing areas in investment management. Um, the U.S. market actually saw an increase for socially responsible and ESG-focused strategies grew by 76% just from 2012 to 2014. And the assets in this kind of a strategy are at um, $6.5 trillion with a T um, and 
just one other statistic that I found interesting was that one out of every six dollars that are going into professional investment management are going into these types of strategies. So it's in high demand. And what's even more important, and for our purposes and what you do so wonderfully all the time, Sue, is that um, it's important to women. So if we look at studies it show of high net worth investors, about half of them are, are interested in incorporating these types of strategies into their portfolios. But then when we screen out just for millennials and women, that number shoots up to 73% find this very important to them and their investment. And so um, I just think that it's a really important thing for us to talk about because studies show that by 2030, women are going to control two-thirds of the wealth um, in our country. And so we have to remind ourselves that it's important to be empowered as we're making financial decisions and that if we do want to put our purpose into our portfolios, we can and still have viable, successful, um, good outcomes. So if we're, if we're looking to, to invest responsibly, um, how will that affect our returns? Well, it's a good question, and despite these strategies becoming very popular, there's always been a reluctance to incorporate them into our portfolios because investors are concerned that maybe good performance and good investing are mutually exclusive. And, and that's actually not the case. So if we look at um, Deutsche Bank did an analysis of 100 different academic studies, and what they found is that in 89% of those studies show that companies with high ESG ratings ex actually showed market-based outperformance. So sort of gone is the idea that you can't have your cake and eat it too when it comes to this type of investment profile. That's great news. Really good to hear. Yeah, thank you. So, um, listen, Kristen, we really appreciate your joining us today. You always have some great advice and good insights, and um, we'll be sure to share that uh, white paper that you that you shared with me. And oh, thank you so much. Yeah, quickly give out your website for our listeners so they can find you. Sure, they can always visit us at fhbaird, which is f h b a i r d dot com. Okay, very good. Thanks, Kristen. Have a great rest of the week. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Uh, now I'm um, thrilled to introduce my very special guest this afternoon who has joined me in the studio, which is wonderful. She's sitting across the desk from me. Her name is Marjorie Margulies, and Marjorie, who many of you already know, is the president of Women's Campaign International. Um, she was also previously a journalist and a congresswoman for the state of Pennsylvania. Marjorie, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Um, so we're going to try to cover all the information that I have on you and, and try to touch on all of the really quite interesting and impressive um, uh, accomplishments that you've had in your lifetime and you're still going. So I don't want to talk about it like it's over. <laughs> Far from it. Um, but I'd love for you to just talk for a few minutes about your years growing up here in Philadelphia and kind of give the listeners a sense of your family and where you came from. Well, I... I my family was from Philadelphia. I actually went, spent an awful lot of my teenage years uh, in Baltimore, and then went to graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, and um, I had really terrific parents. 
uh, one sister, and then my parents became um, legal guardians to a couple other students whom I knew. Uh, so early on, it was something that was important to us. And um, what else can I tell you? They were they were great. They gave me a lot of leash. I um, was a foreign exchange student a couple of times. Mm-hmm. I started out teaching and then went to what is now NPR, started out doing foreign language program and then a, a news features program and then went to WCAU, w, uh, then became a CBS News Foundation fellow at Columbia, mm-hmm. came back here for a little while and then went to NBC in New York. And um, by that time I had adopted I adopted two kids before I got married. By that time, I had adopted my first child. And um, and so I did I, – I wasn't able to do as much traveling as I as I wanted, but they were very nice to me. The NBC was very nice to me. So I worked for them for quite a while. I worked for, uh, for NBC and its owned and operated stations until 91. Okay. And when I ran for Congress, and it shocked the – heck out of myself one and um and that's my story story. (laughs) well i want to dig in a little bit deeper my my first question is whether do you believe your parents instilled in you this sense of activism so this sense of you know uh helping others beyond what your own aspirations they were were great they were great Uh, really anytime i asked my parents especially my dad my dad was a huge character to help me out with anything or do something or you know um he would say uh, no do it uh, when 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 i adopted my first child they really did think that i was crazy and when lehe first child came um my dad just went crazy for her I mean, he just it was so much fun to watch him um th- they were just really supportive all the time and um, and and liked what I did, so they were they encouraged me a tremendous amount. Yeah. Um, tell me what made you decide to study broadcast journalism. I didn't. Oh, you didn't. I'm no, sorry. no, I I never studied broadcast journalism. I I was a international relations and uh, an IR major and a language minor, and I just I went into the the educational station and asked if I could. I just thought it would be kind of nifty to do it. I just liked doing sto- – I mean, I liked writing and I liked doing stories. I loved all of that stuff. And I got a kind of a volunteer job and then was hired. Um, and then somebody, very sweet person, would listen to this, my program, which was um, listened to by very few people. And uh, I started an internship at WCAU and was hired there and, and actually talked my way into it. The The news director's name was Barry Nemkoff, just a gem. And I said to him, you know, we, you, I think I can learn this fairly quickly, but I do come with a bit of a bit of a background and it, it might be good. So he said, well, you know, let's I'll give you a, a chance if you want to do an internship. And I did, and that's how it happened. But I didn't study uh, journalism at all. Oh, forgive me. When I was reading over your bio, I thought that that was actually what you majored in, but it was international relations? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you came right out of school, and uh, how did you land the internship? No, I, I was a, a teacher for a couple of years mm-hmm. in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Okay. 
and then I was fired, and I was <laughs> I locked horns with the principal over something that was really quite extraordinary, and decided that um, I, I and I, I in, in the interim I became head of our the the youth program the, the the neighborhood youth corps in Philadelphia, and that's I had a job, and I just thought wouldn't it be fun to to do broadcasting, and that's how it started. And, so, it, and tell me, the interest was in the stories telling? The or interest was, it in the was in the idea that you could put a story like the Neighborhood Youth Corps out so that people could understand it, but understand it through the young folks who were making it work. I mean, that was my initial interest. And and then I went in, and, and I, and I like to write. So I went in, and the person who was running the station said, come on in, and we'll see what you can do. And that's how it started. Yeah. Um, you know, you've experienced two firsts in your lifetime, and, and perhaps some others that I'm not aware of. But uh, you were the first woman ever elected to Congress from Pennsylvania. In my own right. In your own right, yes. In other Which words, is impor- yes. in the th- 30s and 40s, 19, 1900s, um, Several members died, three, and their wives succeeded them. So those, and they were obviously women, but um, I was the first one in my own right. Yeah. Um, But you were also the first ever single woman to adopt a foreign child. Right. Okay. So I want to talk about Holly first, and we spoke just for a moment before the show briefly. Um, Sadly, she lost her battle with cancer uh, a year ago, which is still fresh, I'm sure. Yes. And my question for you was really in how you, you're coping with that. My, you know, you're a mother of a combined family of 11 children. <laughs> and so my guess is there's always something going on, right? right to right. keep you, to keep you busy, but that's a tough, tough. Oh, it's loss. awful. I, I mean, I, any, any person who's lost a kid knows, I mean, it's just, it, you just, it's, there's nothing worse. I mean, there really isn't anything that you can imagine that's worse. And, um, I, 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 I you just, I was talking to, to Joe Biden, and he said, you know, people tell you it gets better and everything like that. It just doesn't. It just hits you every now and then. She has two um, totally adorable kids. She lived in Idaho, and the kids just came in to be with some of the other cousins. And they're darling. I mean, they look just like Holly. You know, Holly was a combination. She was an Amerasian. Mm-hmm. She was really um, a character, a street child. When she came, she was six years old. She smoked. She was um, a pickpocket. She was really good. Um, <laughs> and she, but she was a character. Went to Penn, um, and very, very, very independent. Uh, anybody who has gone through the adoption process and has um, has adopted an older child, you know that uh, you. It's really hard to leave the first. Uh, uh, Lee Hay was seven, Holly was six. It's it's hard to change them. I mean, they come uh, intact and sometimes rebellious, and Holly was always a street child. I mean, she was fabulously funny, and she was amazing, and she was really bright and everything like that. But every now and then, she, she was a survivor, and survivors often um, look at things through a different lens. Mm. But she was great. She was really great, and her kids are amazing. But you never, I mean, it's just, it, it's a big thud often. You know, it's just an awful thing, awful, awful thing to go through. Um, and, uh, you know, I I, uh, I don't know whether there's an answer to that question. It's just, it's the worst. 
I wonder, um, have you ever thought about why that particular child, out of all of the millions of children, landed in your home? One, one of my kids, we, um, in, we took a, a, a Vietnamese refugee family in, and they lived with us for 20 years. And we became the legal guardians to their three kids. And one of the kids, whose name is Vu, who we... <laughs> the kids were all over his house. He has three kids now. He's an anesthesiologist. Um, we were on a, a trip with the kids. We took nine of the kids to Venezuela. And Vu was, I don't know how old he was, but he was young. But he said something that I will never forget. We were walking on the beach, and everybody was kind of playing. And he said, what do you think would have happened had my folder been on somebody else's desk that day? Mm. So in answer to your question... <laughs> I don't know. It, it's so random. Uh, I mean, uh, when I went over to do a story, uh, I, I had papers and everything like that, and they said, we've picked a little girl for you. And I thought, okay, I'm delivering. I'm in Korea, and I am delivering. It was Lie. And then I went to Vietnam. I was also working in Vietnam, and I ran into the people who who – HALT, which is the adoption agency I, I used in Korea, they were setting up an orphanage set up in Vietnam, and I r literally ran into them on the street, and they said, don't, don't pick a child. I was also working. Don't pick a child. We'll pick a child for you. Mm. So that's, uh, that's, happened, uh, that's how it happened, and it is totally it – it was random. Yeah. You know, but meant to be, I would imagine. How could well, it not be, you know, once – once you have that child and you, you have an impact on their life and you watch them go from one situation to something glorious. Well, I mean, it, it had its, its moments. You know, some with the highs were high and the lows, I mean, were low. <laughs> they were great. I, I, yeah, it's not easy. Ki you think? Um, <laughs> but the kids were, if you would see our household, the kids really do give each other incredible strength and uh, most of the kids could kind of kind of land any place and and be upright they're they're good and they're very very good with each other yeah that's wonderful did you always know that you were going to adopt no i didn't i what didn't do you think? I just, was, was it your reporting was, that that totally okay. i was i was in my late 20s and i figured oh, i could do that i mean I, it was I, I didn't – in a million years, I never thought I would have this many kids. But, I mean, I thought, well, I can do that. And, and, and it's been the most selfish thing I've ever done. It's been such an experience. It's been the best, by a lot, the mm. best thing I've ever done. Why do you say selfish? Because I get – I mean, it, it, it's kind of silly or soppy to say you get so much more out of it than they do, but you really do. I got I got a tremendous amount out of it, tremendous. Um, there were moments when I thought, what in the world did I get myself into? But for the most part, they've just been great. Mm. Um, let's talk about your political career for a moment. And I don't <laughs> My drive-by. I don't think I can interview you and not talk about the infamous last-minute vote in 1993 um, in support of President Bill Clinton's spending bill. I thought this was interesting. You described it as heartbreakingly partisan to you and that you're very much a centrist at that. Are you still today? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I am very much a centrist. I, I'm all for getting things done. I think it's appalling what's going on in Washington today and so sad. 
um, the partisanism, which was definitely uh, when I voted for Clinton's budget, which I thought, uh, well, uh, let me back up a little. I just, I mean, today I just had a conversation with um, a fellow fellow by the name of Michael Flanagan, who was a member, who who was one of the people who came in after I left, and he wrote an article about my vote, which was totally incorrect. So I called him, and I said, what, you know, where did you get that? And he said, it's just Republican lore. And I said, okay, well, let me me tell you the real story. Set you straight. (laughs) And he was lovely. I mean, he was lovely about it because he said, it's just what I heard. I said, well, it's just, it's wrong. You know, he said, I was, you know, I cried for hours. And and this is what happened. I did not cry for hours. Um, (laughs) I I was a no vote because, I mean, all of these these bills are very complicated. About 80% of it I thought was okay. 20%, I didn't think the, it didn't, I didn't think the cuts were deep enough. They didn't deal with entitlements. I thought we had to do that. But I mean, I didn't think that it was a it was a horrible, unforgivably bad bill or anything like that. I just thought it wasn't it didn't go far enough. Um, and I was uh, and you there's a difference between representing and leading, and, and sometimes that comes into into serious conflict. My district was very Republican. I was the first Democrat to represent it in forever, and I said to. Bill, when he called, and it was just a, a quick call, I said, look, you know, I know how important this is to you. I will not let it go down, which means that I will be your 218th vote only if it is a tie, because if it's 217, 217 in the House, it goes down. Tie in the Senate is broken by the vice president. I said to him, I will only be your 218th vote, and I cannot believe that you can't get – I mean – Chairs of committees were voting against this. I mean, it just, it was a, it was controversial. I said, but I came in with him. I mean, and his strong showing helped me get elected. I knew that if this did not pass, he would be a one-term president. That's how important it was. It was a very important vote. So I said, I'll only be your 218th vote. There had only been two votes like that in history, and I knew. One was for the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, and the other one was for the, the draft and I said, I'll only be your 218th vote. And it was a tie. And I broke the tie. Mm-hmm. And, and the, I mean, I'll never forget Bob Walker jumping up and down saying, bye-bye, Marjorie. Jumping. I, I only saw it the next day. I didn't see it that night because that night was crazy. And I thought, wow. I mean, I looked at it and I said, what? First of all, he was right. Secondly, he was, it was just jerky. And, and he was a really good jumper. I mean, he just was jumping up and down. Like, I, but but that was that was the vote. And yeah. um, you know, did you did you in your mind did you understand the magnitude of what that would be, or not until it until it happened? I knew how important it was to him. I thought we needed a I I, I thought we needed a, a reset button on a lot of these items. And it turned out, most economists will look at it and say that was where it started. That's where our strength in the 90s started. Did I have any idea that that would happen? No, I was hopeful. But I knew that it would be politically horrendous for him. Um, and I was standing there. I was standing there with a guy by the, by, by the name of uh, Ray Thornton. Um, he was Bill Clinton's representative in 
in Congress. He had won by more than 70. I mean, I won by just a hair. He had won by more than 70% of the vote. And I said, Ray, this is crazy. You know, he needs you. He, You are his representative. And he had given him all different kinds of jobs in, in Arkansas. And uh, he said, I just, I can't, I can't vote for a 4.37 cent a gallon gas tax. Um, and that, that was it. I, I'm really surprised at the, the number, and, and, and it happens too, that the number of members of Congress who are interested in staying as opposed to figuring out what's, what's right to do. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, that uh, kind of leads me into my next question for you because I think, I think we're all so much more in tune today to politics in general because we have access to what's going on, you know, different from, uh, first of all, when you're younger, sometimes you just don't pay attention. But, you know, today with uh, technology and the Internet, it's all kind of in our face. And um, there was a quote, you, you were referencing a particular vote, and it just got me to thinking. You said this will be one of those rare votes that confronts them with a choice between political survival or leaving a legacy when they are gone. And so my question to you is, are votes ever based on beliefs and values in Washington? I mean, I'm sure they are, but there's this balance between that and political survival. So how how prevalent is that in Washington where they're trying to, dis- to make a decision and um, – vote on a bill based on their actual beliefs or whether that's going to ruin their political career. It's hard to tell. Uh, that's kind of an impossible question. It's, it, you know, it, it's hard to tell mainly because uh, there's some really, really terrific members. I mean, just incredible members. And so many of them are very skilled at figuring out how they can combine those, the two aspects of, of, of voting that you just mentioned. Um, I think the survival instinct, although it's less true now because of redistricting and and, uh, and and gerrymandering, but I think the survival instinct is very strong, and I think that we should be putting people in there who really, really can get things done, and that's that's not what's happening. Whatever it is, I mean, it, you know, when you hear the leader in the Senate say. The one thing we're going to do is make sure that Obama doesn't doesn't have a successful presidency. And it's just disgraceful. I, I think what's happening with uh, with Trump is is sad, but I, I want him to succeed because I want the country to succeed. Uh, I think some of it's just bizarre. But I want the members to come together and get things done. Yeah. And that's not it's just not happening, not even a little bit. I want to, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. When we come back, I would just want to talk a little bit more about that. What, you know, what change you have seen in your career that perhaps is different today that's keeping everything kind of at a halt. Um, we'll be right back. This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at womentowatch.net. 
and our own website, foleyhillsleygroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at foleyhillsleygroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to foleyhillsleygroup.com to learn more. That's F-O-L-E-Y-H-I-L-L-S-L-E-Y group.com. Or call 610-238-6636. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860 and net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Marjorie Margulies, the president of Women's Campaign International. Uh, and before we get started, I wanted to give you our call-in number if you're listening and you'd like to call and join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. Um, you can do so by dialing 888-329-3306. That's 888 888- 329-3306. Excuse me. Um, so just before the break, we were talking about just politics in general and today versus years ago. And um, you're certainly well-equipped and have the experience um, that I-, I wanted to know your view on why you think there's such gridlock today compared to 30, 40 years ago. What has changed? Um I think the basic partisanship has made a huge difference. People will tell you also that members um, often are not necessarily living in Washington. One of the things that when I was there and and I was married to a um, a member who was in who was there in the seventies, and they will tell you that one of the things that members often did was they would go to baseball games together or they would go to their soccer, their kids' soccer practices together. And there was much more comedy. You know, even uh, Tip O'Neill will will tell the stories of his locking horns with the leaders and then going out afterwards for drinks. Mm -hmm. There isn't a lot of that going on now. There's real division. The other thing is members spend huge amounts of time raising money. The money in politics is appalling. We should all be angry with Citizens United. We should all be angry with that kind of, um, those huge amounts of money coming into politics that are just dead wrong. I mean, there is no way, there's no way to get around it. Look at the race in Georgia. I mean, they spent $50 million on, on a house race. It was extraordinary. It's, we've shifted and members will tell, many members will say, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm not going to be spending this much time, this much time raising money. And if they, even if they have safe districts, they have to raise money either for others or for their their party. It's just it's 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 a different scene, and it's and it's really wrong. 
And I guess it really just affects people's priorities. You know, they lose, if it's all about that money, you know, they lose their sense of why they're there, you know, what they're looking to do. Now, there, there are many members who, 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 are, who are not that way, but the, but the reality is, the temptation is, uh, is there. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the Women's Campaign International for a few minutes. Um, tell me what your proudest accomplishment with this organization has been. Well, let me tell you how we got here. I was the head of our delegation for the Beijing Conference in 95 in China. And when we got back, the White House suggested that what we've got to do is commit to something. What they wanted to do was commit to getting more women to the table. And so I started Women's Campaign International. Our first grant was from Annenberg at the University of Pennsylvania. And that was 20 years ago. And I had no idea whether it would work or not. And what we do is we travel around the world. And we train, we also have a program in the Philadelphia area, but we train women to be leaders. Uh, we do workshops, and it's just, it's so interesting. And, uh, let, me, let me give you an example, just let me be anecdotal, because women are very good at being an- anecdotal. <laughs> uh, in, in 2007, we went into Liberia, and it was for, with a grant, because I had been, I the head of our committee when I was in Congress was Jack Murtha, and he was head of military appropriations. And I went to Jack and I said, look, you know, women handle um, peace differently than men do. They handle fighting differently than men do. And he gave us a grant for conflict transformation in Liberia because it's post, we do a lot of post-conflict countries. And we went there and really made an impact. They liked us. And the head of USAID mission, his name is Pam White, said stay and train women on other financial literacy and, and, and legal literacy and those kinds of things. And she gave us, through USAID mission, a lot of money. I mean, a, a series of... And we stayed there up until very, very recently. We trained thousands of women thousands. I mean, the numbers are extraordinary in every area of Liberia, every area. And when Ebola struck, we were there. Talk about random. I mean, all of a sudden, we had this incredible um, group of women on the ground. Ebola is a disease of information. And they had to stop the ritual cleansing. They had to stop, you know, in, in, in Liberia, they clicked to say hello. I mean, you give me your hand and you click. I mean, and, and there was just a lot. When people who had Ebola came back to their villages, they were rejected. They shouldn't be because they're immune. So they were the ones who should be cooking. They were the ones who should be serving. Our women knew that. And we helped stop the, the, the tide of Ebola because our women were there. That's what we do. We're, we are an, an organization that trains women to be leaders. Most of the women we worked with in Liberia were farmers, and they were illiterate but brilliant. And, so, and we also work with women who want to run for parliament. We, we doubled the number of women in parliament in Malawi, for instance, and one of our women, Kalista Chimombo Wamutadika, went onto the, onto the president's cabinet, and he married her. So then we had a first ladies initiative. I mean, it goes on. I could, I could, I could tell you tons and tons and tons of stories. But that's what we do. We, yep. we help train women to be leaders. So, you know, you just used a phrase, you know, these women were illiterate but brilliant. I love that. What is it 
intuition? Is it noticing the subtleties? You know, we talk every week on this show about women in leadership and why. Why do we need women? Why are we doing this? Why do we have organizations like yours? What do you think it is about women that makes us such great peacemakers? Well, I think we're all purpose infielders. I think we're the ones who hold the families together often. We're the ones who, I mean, in, in, in many of the countries, we're the ones who, who gather, who make things survive, who understand, you know, what's going on. And in, if you go into some of the countries that we're in, they just, they make the days work. We will go into town and the men will be sitting because there aren't jobs and things. It's not their fault, but sitting around not doing the kinds of things that the women do to, uh, to, there, there, there's something about us. Now, that's not, I'm, I'm not eliminating, our, you know, the, our weaknesses or men's strengths or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that women really often have purposes that we don't recognize and, um, and we should respect them. And, and we're not represented in near the numbers. We're not, we're not represented in, in companies and near the numbers we should be. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, uh, it is very inconvenient to run. It really is. You know, it's, and we're the ones who are holding, often, holding families together. All, right. Although men are stepping up to the plate much more often than they used to. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we're the ones who, who are brought up, we're acclimatized differently. I mean, still at, at the tables when, when the kids are young. Um, their brothers are much often talked to in terms of leadership more than mm-hmm. than girls are. Mm-hmm. Not not in my house, but I mean, and, right. and not, not in, in your my house. house. No. But <laughs> and, and I'm sure a lot of the people who are listening say, "Wait a minute, come on, yeah, honey, <laughs> you're you're so <laughs> wrong." But uh, you know what I'm saying. I mean, I we, we think historically, in, yeah, yeah. I mean, and we think in terms of of family and babies and all those kinds of things. And and you and you have to you can have it all but you can't have it all at the same time and you can't have it all with the same um kind of intensity mm-hmm. so that's that's what we have to figure out that's and, right and luckily we're we're living longer and we're you know we can revisit or visit uh spots that we never thought we'd be able to that's right and right we can t- you know i think with technology that gives us an opportunity today to perhaps choose to um be you know at home with the children and then later in life do something that that's worthwhile although um, it's very very hard to get back into the the, the work field it really is it it's it's very hard so I always tell my kids especially if they intend to have kids try and keep your hand in whatever your bliss is that's right as long as you possibly or in some way mm-hmm. because it's very hard to get back after your kids have grown yeah you know what the good news is there's actually couple of companies that, that I happen to know that are doing exactly that. They're matching corporations with women who are kind of, you know, looking for that second act. And they, they've always been involved in something. So they have all kinds of, you know, abilities and expertise that, um, you know, that these companies are looking for. So there's support And there, there. are rarely employees who are better. I mean, women who have taken time off and have seen their kids grow up in an instant – and they want to get back, and they can't get back into what they'd like to do. There's, those are the folks who are incredibly wonderful to employ because they're so appreciative. And wiser. Much, uh, right? much, 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 much wiser. Um, so we talk about economic, political, and personal empowerment on the show all of the time. 
What personal lessons have you learned that have helped to shape your drive in pursuing your aspirations? Uh, I have no idea. I mean, I don't know. Did you know? Was there a moment, um, an aha moment, a revelation, something that kind of really, or perhaps you always, you know, I always want to know uh, who who was the young girl. What were what were your what was your confidence level and self esteem as a young girl? And did you have a a moment where something clicked for you? Not that I can recall, but I, you know, if if my kids, one of the things that I say to my kids all the time is. You cannot win if you're not prepared to lose. You've got to get on the playing field. You've got to make sure that you're willing, you know, to, to, to risk. I don't think I'm a gambler, but I think I'm a risk taker. And, and I always was, always. Uh, you know, I always tried to do things that were different. I mean, I tried even in the summers to go places without friends because I knew that if I went by myself, I would – Learn people. I would meet people and and do things that were a little different. But mm. and my parents were great, and they all. I mean, they always always let me do stuff. Yeah, did did that come from a sense of curiosity and learning, or or was it a competitive nature in you? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I really don't. I yeah. I was. Uh, I I was a bit studious. I was a bit athletic. I was a bit, who knows? I was a dancer. I mean, I, um, I, I, it's okay. <laughs> well, I'll I give you time to think about that one and bring you back another time. <laughs> oh, shucks. <laughs> okay, tell me, tell me, what's your definition of a great leader? It's someone who is pretty linear, understands what the end product is going should be, but also the steps to get to it. And also is somebody who listens and compromises. Mm. You know, speaking of that, I think there's there's not a lot of that going on, again, in Washington. And I wonder if you ever have given thought to uh, whether this two-party system is the best. Um, you know, should... What happens if you're if you're in, with one party, you're loyal, then you have that loyalty. Um, and that, I think, can kind of lead you away from uh, making the right decisions. Do you, do you think it's a matter of just kind of fixing what's broken now or perhaps changing the system altogether? Uh, there are people who have tried to change the system, and it's yeah. just, especially now, as it's so much locked and loaded and, yeah. you know, with redistricting and, and uh, gerrymandering. And I, I, I just don't see it as happening. Uh, it, it would be nice to think that we could have some kind of an independent group I think the way to get to where we want to get to when, and where we need to get to now is for those people who are reasonable in Congress who will pull themselves away mm-hmm. from the party identity and mm-hmm. get things done. Mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing a little bit of it. We're not seeing enough of it. And we're certainly not seeing the kind of encouragement that we need from the White House. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not – uh, you know, it, it, you can't do it with insults, and you can't do it with tweets, no. and you can't do it with, you know, the the kind of uh, traditional uh, approaches. I think we're seeing a little bit of pullback, especially on the Senate side with Sessions. We're seeing uh, you're not going to do this. We're not going. It's it's not going to happen. Um, but 
I, I think as much as I would love to see a real kind of healthy rebellion that would work, um, un, until Republicans start to lose their seats, uh, there's not going to be the kind of movement that I think we should be having um, in in this Congress. Do you see hope in our younger generation for that to ha- occur, the, mil- the millennials, I, so to speak? I wish I could say yes. I wish I could say yes. But, you know, and I do a lot of kind of speaking and I teach at Penn. Right. Um, I, I think there's just huge frustration, you know, of throwing their hands up in the air there was a lot of a lot of movement, a lot of positive movement in this last election, and then a bit of shock. Uh, so, I'm not sure. I think it will happen because mm-hmm. I think people will get so frustrated that they have to. But right now, uh, there's. I, I think that people are almost numb, and they've 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 had it with with what's going on and the nastiness. I hope. I think it's our only hope that the next generation picks it up and, you know, kind of onward, moves it forward. Yeah, I think that word reasonable is extremely important that you use, that we we really need more of that. Um, Is there anything that you haven't done in your lifetime that you're hoping to do? That's that's a good question. I I think with Women's Campaign International, what what we try to do is go to a place and expand as much as we can. Right now, we're doing a project with a fellow by the name of Vint Cerf. He, he's credited with starting the Internet with a guy by the name of Khan at, at Stanford many years ago. And he wants to get the Internet to women all over the world, but to people all over the world. And we, Women's Campaign International, we hope, uh, will be – his outreach for the women for, for in villages, the women's community, because they're often the ones who are the glue that hold the communities together. So uh, right now, in, in immediately, I would love to see our technology outreach work. We're also working on a project um, with a fellow by the name of, of, of um, Harkey, who was Vince Harkey's son. His name is, is Jan Harkey. And he's working with the UN and the Clinton Foundation to uh, work with the island nations. The island nations are often most affected by the environmental change, global warming, and they do least to add to it. So if, if, <coughs> if I could find um, – a path right now of things that I would like to do. That's that's the most open path. Uh, you know, would I like to go skydiving? I don't think so. <laughs> it's not uh, on your bucket list. No. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I think there there are tons of things. It's kind of fun. Um, I it, people say this. One doesn't think that grandparenting is going to be as much fun as it's really fun. Oh, I hope it is. <laughs> uh, it's so much fun. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I bet. And How many grandchildren do you have? Twenty. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I mean, you know, it's so the uh, the grandparenting thing is, is huge fun. I bet. So let me ask you: you're you're an incredibly busy woman. And is you're trying to give attention to your grandchildren and your children? Family is we. No one says family is not the first priority. Um, I don't like to ask the question about work-life balance because I think it's all life. 
but how do you manage to um, get the responsibilities done for Women's Campaign International and not feel that you're not giving the time that you now should it's, defend? Now like. it's a lot easier because my kids are grown and they're, you know, they are responsible for the most part, carbon-based homo sapiens. They're out there working and uh, so that I, so that my life is a, a bit more my own, although we get together and and, and and play and they, you know we try and make sure that the cousins all get together but when I was um, you know when I was broadcasting and and when I was a member of Congress the juggle was really um, w- w- was really pretty intense I bet and and but I had a lot of a lot of support and the kids my first adopted child was 14 when my first bio kid was born so there was a lot of a lot of help, and we always had we had refugee families living with us and things like that. It was a juggle, but it wasn't easy, and I, I'm not so sure it wasn't a good um, learning experience for everybody. But when it didn't work, it really didn't work. It was it was tough mm-hmm. uh, when it fell apart. But for the most part, the people say, "Well, my gosh, you had all these people and everything like that." But the number helped. <laughs> you know, what I mean, well, I would not suggest. Yes, if, if, if I, I would not suggest to anybody that you have a gaggle of kids and you know, and try and work and everything like that at yeah. the same time. But it worked. I mean, it worked for us because it kind of had to, but also because we had people who were really quite okay. Yeah. <laughs> we had people who were really nice. Yeah. W- would you describe <coughs> yourself as high energy? Um, I guess. <laughs> I guess. I have a very long fuse. Uh, yeah. I mean, I would say, by and large, high, high energy would. Uh, <laughs> I think you're crazy if, if, if you get yourself into this situation and, and you don't. And, and you're not, lethargic. And, That's not going to work. And you're not energetic. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, do you have a favorite quote? I love quotes, and I just, you know, is there one that jumps out for you that uh, inspires you? I can remember uh, giving oh, – it's, it's a bit of a poem that I love. Uh, when I – I did not write this. It was a, it's, it's an anonymous poem that <clears throat> I gave to Lehi on the on – the, actually, when I adopted her. And I really love it because it has incredible resonance. And it goes, not flesh of my flesh nor bone of my bone, but still miraculously my own. Never forget, not even for a minute, you weren't born – under my heart, but in it. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. Sweet? I know. Beautiful. I know. Unknown, or do you know who? who I don't. It's anonymous. Yeah, it was yeah, it's an- somebody sent it to me, and I thought, oh, how, how perfect, terrific is this? Yeah. And I wrote a book about the kids about single adoption called "They Came to Stay," and I I put it in there because I thought it just isn't that true? I mean, you weren't born under my heart, but in it, yeah. and it's it's really true. Oh, it's beautiful. Isn't that perfectly nice? appropriate? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, we just have a, a, a minute left. Um, tell me what you think the greatest challenge for women is today that we're facing. Well, I, I think it's that finding the balance and, and what works for, for you. Um, it is, I travel all over the world and work with women, and there's such abuse and there's such you know, we're so lucky here we're just so we lucky are. We I mean, are. Women, women do hard I mean, all the numbers are different but it's about 77% of all the work that is done worldwide is women they get about 10% with regard to salary worldwide and they own 1% of the land and 
we're we're off by a lot. Mm-hmm. We've got to. We've got to stand up for our rights without people thinking that we're bitchy or that we're we're inappropriate, bossy, bossy, right? Arrogant, yeah. and that's hard. Mm. Uh, and it's also exhausting. You know, come come on. You know, give me a break. Um, but. I do think that that we have um, we have Women's Campaign International, which is the organization that um, I'm very much a part of, uh, and we have a great group there, and they understand that getting to the places where we get to, and we we do and we 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 go and we do an assessment, and we fi- we we do a lot of listening, mm-hmm. uh, we we do a lot of. Um, planning before we go in, and sometimes we'll go into a country and it's just not right for us, so we won't we won't stay. Uh, but what we do, uh, we know that we make an incredible impact, long term impact, mm-hmm. and that's what we need more of. Yeah. Well, I I think it's happening more today than ever. Yes. So you know that's the good news. <laughs> I thank you so much, Marjorie, for coming in. It was such a pleasure to share your story. You are so welcome. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. Be sure to check out our website for all things related to the show at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Have a great week.